Welcome to The Dirt on the Past, a program of the Extreme History Project that explores the good, the bad, and the ugly about our human past. Because, let's face it, Crystal. Yep, history is not pretty, but it is so important to know. Because it is the very thing that has led us to the most critical concerns that we have in the present. So join me, Nancy Mahoney. And me, Crystal Alegria. As we talk to archaeologists and historians who have been digging in the dirt. And in the archives. To uncover the fascinating histories that are not only relevant to today's issues. But help us move forward in a better way with a deeper understanding of our past. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at KGLT Studios speaking via Zoom with Dr. Tim Urbaniak about his new book, Men of the Cave, The Excavation of Empty Gulch. And we are so excited to talk with Dr. Urbaniak. But first, Crystal, let's check in about your week. Yes, uh, we've been doing a lot of fun things at Extreme History Project this week, including interviews for our new intern, which we will be hiring in the next few days. So we've been doing... That's so exciting. Are you done with the interviews? We are done with the interviews, and we've made our decision. I just have to send the email. So. Wow. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. So, uh, so hopefully by next time we do a podcast, I can tell you who our intern is. And, and they'll be joining us the end of May and working with us through the end of August. So it's going to be so really maybe exciting. helping us on the podcast yeah, too. And helping us on the podcast and and maybe even coming in and visiting with us on the podcast, which would be really fun. That's so that so was exciting. That's always fun. And these are um, students from Montana State University, undergraduate and graduate students applied. So that was really fun too. So um, we've also been doing a lot of grant writing and you know we're always writing grants, but it seems like we've been <laughs> writing a lot of grants <laughs> the last wow. couple of weeks. And we've gotten a couple. So um, congratulations! Yeah, we That's got fantastic. we found out about one. Um, two that we've gotten in the last week. So that's always ex- exciting to get that call or email about getting a, a grant. So that's been fun. But yeah, so things are going going along. And of course, as we come into spring, all of our programming for the summer is we're kind of fine tuning all of that and getting that in place. So that's exciting as well. But what about you, Nancy? Yeah. Um, well, it's been kind of fun because I know, you know, we're coming up on MAS and you yeah. and I are working together on our presentation about the podcast, which is fun. And, and tell everybody what MAS is. Oh, for those sorry, who don't Montana know. Archaeological Society. Yeah, it's a small group of us, so yeah. there's no reason to feel like you should know that, um, unless you're a member. Uh, yeah, yeah. But we're excited because it's always fun to see friends, and this year it's in Bozeman, so it's very easy for us to attend. Mm, yeah. And yeah, so we'll be giving a presentation there, as will a lot of other people we know from Bozeman that do archaeology. Um I'm excited because we got a yes from Dr. Patty Crown to do an interview with us, and that'll be in June. I think it might be when you're away, unfortunately, so I might be going solo, might have to rope someone in, but it's it's about her book on, on finding you know, chocolate in the in the cylinder vessels in Pueblo Benito and just such interesting research about that and much more of the research she did with her students in um, excavations not that long ago. So that was exciting. And also I had a lovely woman walk into my store needing a small repair on her lovely pair of free people pants that she had just given a presentation in. I inquired about the presentation and she said it was on medieval warrior women, women in the army kind of, you know, fight. And, and I said, well, you know, I do this podcast. Well, it turns out her name is Danielle and you already know her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know when you called me and told me that, that you had met her, I said, oh, is it Danielle? And you said, yes. <laughs> right away. Yeah. Yep. Danielle did a um, presentation for our lecture series. I think it was a Two, two years ago, two or three years ago, she did it. And so I don't know why I didn't think of her to come on the podcast sooner than this. But I'm yeah, excited. I'm excited so that that's she walked be into your store. And I know. <laughs> it's, everything comes full circle. Yeah. I know. And I hadn't dropped your name. So we, we didn't close the loop until yes, a little after. Right, right. But yeah. And then, you know, um, I know Give Big is coming up in early May at Cinco de Mayo this year. And so you and I are talking about um, hosting something, a donor lounge at yeah, MOCA for Extreme, for Extreme History. History. Yeah. And yeah, we got a little more That'll planning really to fun. do, but that's exciting. We have some good ideas. I know. And now that spring actually together. feels like it's on our way, I feel like it'll be really 
fun. So yeah. so yeah. that's all exciting. And other than that, everything's good. I'll be I'll be heading next week to Boston, oh, where I will see Marsha Fulton, yes. one of the other founders yes. of Extreme History. I'm so excited. And I'm going to hang with my sisters and okay. um, have a little bit of time there. So I'm excited about that. And then we'll be back after that for yeah, another podcast. We will. We okay. will. Well, we should get back to our... Yeah. Podcast. And Nancy, I wanted to talk a little bit about our sponsor for this podcast, oh, which yeah. is the Museum of the Rockies. Yay! So we're so awesome. glad to have the Museum of the Rockies sponsoring this episode. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Museum of the Rockies is located right here in Bozeman, Montana. And the Extreme History Project has had a partnership with the museum for many, many years. They host our popular monthly lecture series and have for like 13, this is our 13th year there. Um, and so we have been longtime partners in that, but partners in a lot of other things that we've done with the museum over the years. And this is a world-class museum. The exhibits, yeah. collections, programs, and research really create a community resource that brings the world to Montana and shares the Northern Rockies with the world. And Museum of the Rockies is recognized as a world-class cultural natural history museum and research facility. And it is renowned for displaying an extensive collection of dinosaur fossils, including the fully mounted Montana's T-Rex skeleton. But, and you know, they are known for their dinosaurs, but we really especially love their history collections, yes. including a collection that we're probably no doubt going to be discussing today, which is the um, Lewis Kramer collection. Right. Right. And uh, they have a huge archive. In addition to this collection, they have a huge archive of historical objects and archaeological artifacts. And so we do a lot of research at the museum, and we really um, look to them for some of these artifact, uh, artifact collections. And Nancy, you have worked with them a lot with that um, I have spent a lot of time in the basement. Right, yep. going through collections, Scandin, archaeological collections. the whole ledger, the Kramer-Lewis yeah. ledger, exactly. The Kramer-Lewis. Yes. The Kramer-Lewis. Yep. Um, so a big thank you to the Museum of the Rockies for supporting this episode today with a special shout-out to Michael Fox, the curator of cultural history. So with Fantastic. that, I think we can get to our guest. Yeah. Hi, Tim. Hey, how are you doing? Welcome. So well, we thank you. Good, good. We want to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you before we dive into questions. Dr. Tim Urbaniak has an extensive background leading academic, commercial, and volunteer projects applying technology and to the documentation of historical and archaeological resources. His projects have included rock art and historic inscription surveys, 3D reconstructions of historic sites, surveying technologies, three-dimensional scanning, and much more. Dr. Baniak holds a PhD in anthropology from the University of Montana, where he studied historic inscriptions and their role as a form of residu residual cultural communication. I love that phrase. Dr. Baniak is retired emeritus from MSU Billings, where he taught drafting and design technology. And now he currently manages True, that's T-R-U Technologies, LLC. It's an archaeological, historical, and anthropological research and consulting service. His recent publication, Men of the Cave, The Excavation of Empty Gulch, is the culmination of more than a decade of research. And I'm so excited because Tim has been a mentor to me uh, regarding a lot of this research. So welcome, Tim. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. And again, it's great to be here with you. Welcome, Tim. So we like to start off by asking our guests what first brought them to the fields of history and archaeology. And you really had a long career in drafting and design. So when did you decide to apply that to the fields of history and the field of archaeology? Well, <clears throat> I was I was originally... Uh, I entered the teaching field... Um, back when the built Montana had a Votec system. So I originally taught at the, what was then the Billings Votec. And after a few years, um, we merged with the university system and we were merged into MSU Billings. And during that time, faculty expectations evolved. Um, you know, we were expected to embrace the three tenets of, of uh, teaching, scholarship and service, which is quite standard in academia. And so I was looking for something new and different other than drawing another set of house plans. I've drawn several houses in the 
past, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I've, I've done industrial structural design. Um, I didn't want to go deeper into industrial construction. It was kind of a been there, did that, um, you know, thing. And, and so while teaching drafting and design, I, I noticed a gap in applying technologies to archaeological and historical projects. Um, you know, if, if we're going to use, if I was going to explore new 3D technologies, why not apply it to historical sites? They were more interesting than another refinery or something. Uh, you know, why not apply evolving GPS and GIS technologies to the mapping of cultural sites and, and support projects through multimedia and as the technologies came along, keep applying them. So I began to apply these tools to topics and uh, quite honestly, it was a target rich environment. They were just not being used in these fields in Montana at the time. And uh, in addition to that, having migrated away from construction into, historic, into history and archeology span and anthropology, I, I found a great class of people there. I found a great group of people there that that, that swore at least slightly less than people in construction. And, and that. Depend, depends on the project. Yeah. On the project. So over time, uh, you know, my, my personal focus was drawn uh, initially to rock art research and eventually to historic inscriptions. But again, over the time, have tried to keep pace with all of these technologies um, as, as they've emerged. Fantastic. And I, I know you've been at the forefront of bringing these technologies in, at least for the amount of time that I've been in Montana and, and seen those changes. So that's been exciting. And I want to get to your interest in Empty Gulch and Pictograph Cave in particular, because you, you've you talked about and you and you talk about in the beginning of your book, this is a place that you would visit as, as a, a young person. And you had a lot of um, reason just to visit this space, even before you were interested in its archaeological content. So um, if you don't mind, could you describe for our listeners where Empty Gulch is um, and then give us a little bit about its history and your sort of personal history with it, too? Okay. Well, <clears throat> Empty Gulch is located several miles southeast of Billings, Montana, and the site is now known as the Pictograph Cave State Park. Um, the, the site has been well known and commonly visited by local folks uh, even prior to the 1937 excavation, uh, extending back into when it was even private property. It was very common for people to go there and scratch around. Right. It was um, homesteaded, the, right, at one point? I mean, it was somebody's homestead, I believe, that they that they I, had to purchase. It may have been included. I'm not sure where the any houses would have been. I know. I don't know if there was ever something proved up on it, but I think it was originally a homestead parcel. Crazy, right? It, it, it I know. was. And, yeah. and it was, you know, when they started the excavation, it was private property. And right. that was one reason that the state of Montana bought it, because they were going to excavate to display these artifacts and uh, one day it occurred to someone that well if we do this they're not our artifacts they'll belong to the private property so the property was bought yeah yeah um the the draw the gulch the valley um it's defined by uh, about an 80 to 120 foot vertical sandstone wall um and over time that wall has developed eroded caves you know, these are fairly shallow caves. They're not, uh, the people that run the park talk about tourists that come there and expect, uh, you know, some massive underground cave like Lewis and Clark Caverns or something. They're, they're not, they're more shallow uh, sandstone caves. Um, I became familiar with the site in the mid seventies um, during a period of exploring rope climbing and rappelling. Mm. Um, uh, this was, this was hundreds of pounds ago. <laughs> for, for <me. laughs> Goodness. And, I, and, I, and less fear of heights ago, yeah, right, too? Right. Doesn't that change right. as you get older? I, know. I did. I, I climbed until I found my fear, and I found some of it out at that park. Uh -huh. um, I, had a, I had a pretty interesting fall one day off oh. the South Point. That, oh, goodness. That left me uh, breathless and dangling by the rope against the cliff face thinking why am I doing this mm. uh, 
It was a great view, by the way. <laughs> While you dangled. Hard, hard to appreciate it, I'm sure, at that point well, in time. Well, sandstone, <laughs> sandstone can be crumbly, too, Tim. Yeah. I mean, that's not it, the, it the best place to be rock climbing yeah. and repelling. Woo, I, I, got, I was climbing, and I got kind of cocky, and I reached for an outcrop, and it popped off in my hand. Oh. And I swung out into space and, and uh, learned what my harnesses were for. Gotcha. Um, but it worked out okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I will say I never, I never did do any graffiti there. I never left any beer cans or bottles. But Good. about every tree off the rim, I've repelled from at some point in time or, or, or other. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, we used to tie off above the main cave uh -huh. and then mm. run and jump out into space so that we could <gasps> swing into the cave oh underneath. Wow. <laughs> Oh my gosh. This is a whole other podcast I know, too. I know. I know. I'd be terrified. Did you make Crazy. someone else do it first? It's like those, I always feel like that way with the rope swings over. Like, do you make someone else do it first? So you see like, are they going to go all the way in and hit the wall or are you? I, mean, they... I, think, I think I did that one first. Wow. Oh gosh. You were the guinea pig. Uh, we were all equally, we were all equally <laughs> stupid at that point in time. <laughs> Oh and, and another part of my personal interest in going out there, you know, we didn't pay any attention to the, the paintings or anything at all. Hmm. Had no idea hmm. the history. It was just hmm. a place you could go. There was nobody around and you could, you could repel, you could climb, you could do whatever you wanted. It was a great place. Um, as another note in the, in the late seventies, um, I served as best man for my friend Harley um, for his first wedding. Mm. I was his best man twice, but his first wedding was, was there. <laughs> oh, neat. And, it was out uh, there. Oh, beautiful. Wow. Yeah. And I still have photos from that. I was able to recover photos from that. And as one of the features that one of the, uh, the bride's friends sat in a tree in the picnic table area and played um, Boree by Jethro Tull on the flute for their music. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> that sounds like a and, 70s wedding. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, there was a lot of hair. There was a lot of hair. <laughs> And did, did he pick it? Did he pick it because it was, you know, this place that you had all hung out or just a beautiful setting and, you know. Kind of both. Yeah. Nice. Kind of, Lovely. You know. Wow. It was, uh, it was the first time Judge Pedro Hernandez officiated for him. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, you have lots of connections to yes, this place, you do. Tim. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, many years after that, um, I, I was, and I had been doing some rock art research and things, but had not really been out there. And I was contacted by the Billings uh, Fish, Wildlife and Parks office to see if we could, they could get us, if I could uh, use a student group to arrange some documentation and, and do some presentation work for the park. And so that first student group, um, they designed a potential visitor center for the site. And it is not the visitor center that is there today but their design and their posters and material were used to go to the legislature and, and, and go to meetings and oh, wow. present the idea um, that led to the uh, um, the visitor center that's there now. Oh, wow. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, Tim, that is amazing. And so beginning with that, I just kept being interested in it, kept gathering It kept calling to you. Yeah. yeah, it kind of sucked you in. Yeah, in a lot of different ways. So, so Tim... Um, kind of coming back to the to the archaeological work that was there. So excavations by the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA, began there in 1937, as you mentioned. And eventually the work was published by archaeologist William Malloy in 1958. Since then, several theses, master theses, and journal articles have been written about Empty Gulch and pictograph and ghost caves as they have really become, we call them pictograph and ghost caves, but most people call it pictograph cave. That's how most people know it at this point. So, right. so you have all, you have this long connection to pictograph cave um, and you started doing some research on empty gulch and pictograph and ghost caves. So what really motivated you to really dive in and write this book, uh, Men of the Cave? Well, I had become kind of obsessed with gathering material about the cave, and it, it, it turned out that was an obsession that I shared with um, Stuart Connor, mm -hmm. um, who uh, did a lot of work documenting the cave, and we'll talk about Stu a little more. Um, Stu said that his uh, records were accumulated 
in order to write a book about this excavation. That was his driving reason. There were, and there were others, um, Ann Johnson and some others that were involved in trying to get this book together. Um, and along the way, Stu let me, he let me digitize, convert to electronic all of the uh, documents that he had uh, about the project. He let me do his excavation. Um, with the intention that I told Stu that if he would let me do that, I would write a book on the topic, uh, which I, I feel I have fulfilled. First edition, anyway. Um, you know, like like Stu, I you know Stu actually got to know some of these people, and and I have not been able to meet. You know, they're all they're all gone now. Um, but like Stu, I feel I've gotten to know a lot of these characters involved, and and it. You know, their stories need to be told. This is a, an important archaeological uh, point in Montana history. Indeed. So I wanted to get the story out there and to fulfill what I had said to Stu. Yeah. Um, let's take a quick station break, and then we're going to dive in a bit more in that. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We are speaking today with Dr. Tim Urbaniak about his new book, Men of the Cave, The Excavations of Empty Gulch. So let's talk a little bit more about Stu Connor before we dive in a little bit about the book itself in particular. Stu, um, I felt like he was legendary when I first moved here in 2005 and, and met him. And there had been this article that talked about the Wild Bunch that was published, and it was a, a bunch of young, at the time, when Stu was younger, um, and like-minded people interested in archaeology who, who knew that there were a lot of archaeological sites around their area and wanted to start documenting and doing some work. So they would, sounds like they would meet regularly and go out. And though Stu was a practicing attorney, um, he really developed an avocational career as an archaeologist. He got very interested in talking to anybody who had professional training that he could and learn those methods. And eventually it earned him an honorary PhD from Montana State University. Um, so so maybe tell us a little bit more about your relationship, Tim, with, with Stu Connor and and his involvement um, in pulling together this research. And as you said, he, he did work with Ann Johnson, and I know there's a, a big article they also published with, um, is it Dave Schwab, who did a master's thesis on Ghost Cave. Um, so give us a little bit more background on, on that and your relationship to him. Did he welcome you with open arms when you said you had an interest in Pictograph Cave? <laughs> <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> now, now, you know, Stu became involved with the site um, through his position uh, as Billings City Attorney. And it was during a time when uh, it was considered that the city would take over the park okay. um, and, and take care of the management of it. It's, it did remain with the state, of course, but uh, there was a drive to do that. And, and so as he continued down that rabbit hole, he began to amass documents in, in the form of government records, newspaper articles, correspondence. And, and he became, you know, very interested in this all, all of a sudden, um, you know, really not having an interest in archaeology before he had, he developed one. The more he worked on this project and then became a, a fantastic rock art researcher in his own right, um, it got a hold of him as well as it, as it does. does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, he had recorded oral histories to tape from the people that were there. And, and of course we have those in the, in the archive. Um, they've been converted to digital. Um, he collected slides and photographs. Um, again, my collection is pretty much exclusively digital. Um, not completely, but 99.5% uh, of. Um, and, and to give you an idea of the amount of archive data that, that I'm housing, right now it's on the high side of 30,000 digital files totaling around 230 gigabyte. Wow. Um, wow. It, it still needs some organization because it has just become massive. 
And so and some no. of this is stews, and then you've added added to it. Yes. So his his yes. physical archives, Tim, are they are they with you, or have they been donated somewhere? No, his physical archives um, were all donated to the uh, little Bighorn College. Mm -hmm. Okay. Crow Agency. Crow? Okay. Yeah. 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 It's at the library there. Oh, that's uh, great. Which is a that very is nice facility. It is. Um, I have. I have accessed some of his material there, um, and it, it's that's a tremendous a nice archive he's built, and then tremendous amount of work for you to digitize all of that and keep it organized. It, it was he would he would give me a a handful of files at a time, and when I brought those back, he'd give me the next handful. So talk about <laughs> now, how how he didn't open now, he didn't welcome you with open arms. I want to know more about this. <laughs> well, see. I, I came out of the scene again with this with this digital material. Yeah. Um, you know these digital technologies. I believe, I believe that my my group and I were the first to ever present uh, using a projector and PowerPoint. At no, MAS. at MAS. So he was an analog guy yeah. all the yeah. way, yeah. right? Were they like drawn on chalkboards yeah, yeah. and stuff? What were they doing there? <laughs> Well, uh, slides. Oh, slides, slides. That's slides. right. Yeah. And I shouldn't laugh because when I was in grad school, yeah, I was ASU, say, we started that way. We too, used Nancy. to stress so much about making our slides. Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, I see. But PowerPoint, yeah. boy, you must have blown them all away, Steve. I, mean, I remember <laughs> Frizen uh, was at that conference. He presented mm. Billings. I believe that one was held at the. Uh, it used to be the Sheraton Hotel. Oh yeah. yeah and okay. I had to provide. I had to provide an overhead projector for Frizen. He had his transparencies that. That he would use okay. and everything, and okay. and then here we come. We didn't even have laptops. Laptops weren't available yet then, so we wow. we brought our machine and the projector and had to plug right. it all in. And right. That. right. Well, so we did a presentation on using digital technology to enhance and modify and clarify rock art, pictographs, and petroglyphs. And immediately after we did, it got two reactions. There was one camp that was like. Oh my God, this is fantastic. Please show us how to do this. What camera should I buy? How should we do it? And the other camp that Stu was initially in was like, what are these guys doing messing with this stuff? And they're, they're just wrecking. <laughs> what they're do they know? Everything. Oh boy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so there was a period of that and it took Stu a couple of years. And, and interestingly enough, I, I won't mention one of the old timers, but he he sent an emissary to me in my office at school one day that told me that Stu had looked at a lot of the stuff we had been doing and he thought it was just fine. And by golly, he thought we should keep going ahead and doing things. So Wow. It was, it's it's sort of like you got the, yeah, you got the anointed from, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because he, he holds a lot. He had a lot of knowledge he held, you know, and that's quite a thing to be able to gain his trust and, and have yeah. that. But I, I eventually got to know him pretty pretty well and and uh um i got to know him as a as a great guy yeah and, yeah uh, yeah it was it was it was sad we lost him well what i would say recently yeah right. uh, i know very recently yeah so that's too bad well tim the the basis of your book is really uh, direct quotes from primary sources, newspaper accounts, WPA reports, university records, and highway department archives. Um, and, you know, you really, your story comes directly from some of these handwritten field notes of Oscar Lewis, who we'll talk about him in a little bit um, as well. And you, you use a lot of the block quotes throughout your text to really tell the story. So tell us about how you made the decision to tell the story of Pictograph Cave in this way, kind of using those primary sources and kind of letting the sources tell the story. Well, and that's, and that's, uh, that's really something that I consciously wanted to do. I, I, um, I, I wanted the people that were there basically to tell the story. Um, and, and so you know, I also wanted the book to be accurate. I mean, again, the, the Pictograph Cave State Park is a very core part of Montana archaeology. Um, a lot of pressure there to be right, you know, right. and so yeah. it, the book is heavily footnoted, as you have seen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, footnotes of the devil. Um, oh my gosh, I know. But, <laughs> but I, I wanted, again, those people to tell the story. I wanted to be able to prove it. I wanted to be accurate. And a lot of those sources, you know, 
as researchers, we go and we encounter, you know, go through the old newspapers and we get the other material and we do these searches. But the casual person reading the book, they, they never get to see a lot of those sources. They, they never get to read that material firsthand. So I wanted to do to do that. Um, and this was really the material uh, written by the people who were doing that the archaeology during the 1930s, during that time period. And, you know, I have to say that as I was reading through the book, it felt like you were kind of right there, right next to these these folks doing this archaeology, you know, because you were reading the, the primary sources that were coming from them at the time. And I just loved that. I, I loved it. It had a real feel for the place, and it had a real feel for the the people who were there doing this work. And I felt like I really got to know some of these people. And, you know, you know these people really well, Tim, and so do you, Nancy. You guys right, know these. Right. You feel like you probably know these people really well, but I got a little glimpse into that as well reading the book, and I just love that. Well, and I I really came to, uh, you know, through, through Oscar's notes um, and other information not by him, but around him, I really came to appreciate Oscar's contribution to the project and, and, and beyond the project and really feel that he is the protagonist of the story. I think he is the main character. I have come to believe that. And, uh, you know, Oscar deserved to have his story told. Yeah. I, I'm amazed at how much of the story you, you were able to tell really following from his notes because his field journals and he was the thread uh, through all the years uh, that there was any work going on or even in between when they weren't digging, but they were still organizing and dealing with artifacts. And and it is, it really kind of puts him center stage um, because there's other people above him and then people below him that he's supervising that kind of pass through, you know? So it's, it is, it's very interesting to see it from that perspective. And I really enjoyed that because I've read almost every word that he wrote in those journals and you get to know the person really well. And it's hard, it's hard not to like and respect them once you've seen that amount of effort that he's put into that, that work there. Um, so you you did him justice, I think for sure, as well as everyone else who who was involved. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is a really wonderful contribution, um, especially by your book and and the information you were able to find out, is um, though it is called Men of the Cave, you found a woman of the cave, um, Catherine McCann, and as far as I know, she's the only woman who actually participated in the field work, was out there digging, and even slept over in empty gulch while she was out there. She wasn't there long. But um, and, and she had some background and, and she went on in her life to do some amazing things. So can you tell us a little bit about Catherine McCann and who she was, how she became involved and, and then where she ended up in life? Well, yeah, I, I and I will admit that that uh, as I was developing this book and, and sending out transcripts to people to review and see what they thought of it and everything, I, I did get a little pushback about the title Men of the Cave, um, which which I used because to attract tourists to the dig in the early days, they advertised that, you know, the guys were living in the cave, you know, go on out and see the cavemen live in there, go see the cavemen living out at this project. And, and so I used that, but, uh, you know, initially it strikes some people as like, oh, sure, another book about men, manly men doing man, manly man things. <laughs> and archaeology back then, well, it, it, it kind of was. Right, um, right. But, but Kath, uh, Catherine, uh, Kate, can I call you Kate? She says it's okay. Did I she answer Kate. you? Yeah. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> as long as I don't see her floating yeah, behind you. Yeah, I'm that's good. okay. <laughs> well, um, she came to be called Kate. Um, I've okay. run across that a lot of her, of her material. Um, so she went by that. Um, but she was a young school teacher, born and raised um, near Weibo in eastern Montana. And she probably got to know uh, Oscar Lewis. You know, uh, there were excavations being done near Glendive and Ekalaka in the summer of 1936. Uh, people were starting to scratch around at the Hagen site, and Oscar was becoming kind of renowned for knowing where stuff was. And so um, he actually, Oscar worked over in that country by, by uh, Ekalaka in the summer 1936 doing some excavating. 
And so I, I imagine that, you know, both being kind of from the same region that they encountered each other somewhere. And that's how she came to be at the dig in Billings. Cause she arrived about the same time as the guys did. And, and, uh, yeah, it was she early, that, right? It was that first summer. It was very early on. Yeah. Yes, yes. It was just it was just within a couple of weeks of the, the main guys arriving there and setting up. Mm. And so uh, she had been exposed to anthropology uh, during her early college years in Missoula. Uh, of course, she joined the dig in, in the summer 1937, um, where she dug into the fall. And in the fall, she transferred to another WPA dig in Savannah, Georgia, um, at is what's called the Irene Mound. And that excavation has a lot of unique features to it. Um, it it's pretty much the only WPA excavation that was dominated by, by women excavators and archaeologists. Um, there were some men present, but uh, it was primarily 32 white women and approximately 87 Afri African American women that did oh, the wow. excavation. That's a fantastic and story. They, yeah. They they spoke they spoke in a dialect that was unique to the region and it said that by the time they were done Kate could speak some oh, of the dialect oh as well. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so she was one of the archaeological leaders there and from that project she published three papers and contributed heavily to the final report. Wow. And <clears throat> excuse me. She eventually finished her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania in 47 and remained in the East where she became curator of archeology span at the State Museum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And so she would come back to Montana and visit often and stayed in touch, but she stayed East once she went that way. So and quite she a success, the, yeah. She yeah. rose through the ranks during a time when women were not really accepted into the field. And she was certainly one of the early occupational pioneers to change that. And I would like more Montanans to know about her. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, agree. I see a future presentation about her. That's yeah. fascinating. And then the Irene Mounds. I mean, that sounds like a yeah. really exciting story. To look into Fun that look a little bit that. more. Yeah. yeah. So, Tim, you've really been a leading force in recording the pictographs that are were found at Pictograph Cave. And these pictographs, I have to say, now are very faint and hard to see. So when you go to Pictograph Cave State Park today, it's a beautiful place to go, and I highly recommend everybody goes there. But when you look at the cave wall, it's hard to see a lot of pictographs today. You can still see some. So what technologies did you use to create the image of the original pictographs, and why was it so important to do this in the first place? Well, it's true that the, the pictographs are very difficult to see. Um, if you have a copy of that poster as a guide and a pair of binoculars, so because you have to stay on the, the viewing platform, you can still make out many of the figures. Uh, I could point out probably a good 50% of them okay. still. That's but good. you have to know where to look, hence the poster, and, right. and, and, and then be able to get up closer. And Tim, just uh, remind people how many pictographs there are in that cave uh, on in total. Well, that, that number is a is a floating number but around 100 okay so quite a lot around a, quite a when lot when they documented and gave them numbers um for instance one that i'll mention in a little bit here they actually documented it three different ways it, it's it's a it's an elk and it has three arrows beneath it and it has three people next to the arrows it was documented as that uh, in context and then they assigned another number to just the arrows and another mm. number to just the elk gotcha. and another number to just a cluster of three people. And then they drew the three people twice in a different version. Mm. So I can see the how numbers that shift would... around. About a hundred. Okay. Confusing. Yeah. It. Um, and is that, is that, is the poster Tim there on a plaque in front of the, the cave as well? Am I remembering that right? Or is it, it or is, is that image there? So you can kind of look at the image. I, I think I think there's extractions from it there now. Okay. Okay. I think there's extractions from it. Yeah. Um, to create that, the first thing you did was was photograph the back wall and then use software to make a panorama of it. And and uh, once I did that. Um, I extracted figures from past works, you know, past documentation, and, and 
colored them appropriately because they they are you know there's red and black and white colors there and then i had to scale them to relative size because in malloy's publication everything is made like a page of shield figures they're all shield figures right. but if you really look at the scale some of them are three feet across some of them are six inches across some of them mm. are so i had to get them to relative size and then i did a lot of looking at historical photos and again gathering up as many photos as i could to try and make these placements because like the book i wanted this accurate i wanted i didn't want anybody to be able to say hey that elk doesn't go there yes it does this is why right <laughs> right yeah and 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 so um you know and i i used layering within the graphical software so that you could arrange them by their levels of uh, 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 superimposition mm. because some figures are older and beneath and other figures right. have been placed over the top of them. Um, and, and I, I felt it was important for somebody to do this for posterity while we still had the information we could get to. Yeah. Um, and out of stubbornness, um, because I've often heard the remark that, or heard it back then that, you know, the, that there was rock art here, but now nobody knows where the figures were located. So we don't know where anything was. And somehow I took that as an obsessive challenge of like, oh, well, we're <laughs> going to figure it out. Yeah. And, uh, and so we have. <laughs> That's great. And I noticed when I was looking at the poster that the the logo for the Montana Archaeological Society was taken from one of the shield figures from Pictograph Cave. And so I think I had known that at some point in my life, but had forgotten. And so you reminded me of that. Like, and there so it there, yeah. there it is. I love that. Well, I have to say it greatly enhances the visitor's experience yeah. to be able to see the poster and to be able to have that because I've heard there, if rain percolates down the sandstone wall, some of them can become more visible again. But mm -hmm. like you said, you really kind of need the poster as a guide and some really good binoculars because especially depending on the light that you have at certain times of day. It is very difficult to see all of them. Some are still visible, but certainly not all 100. So it's it's wonderful, especially from the perspective of doing rock art analysis. And, and when Malloy did publish all these things, he did them in his dissertation in 1952 and then published in 58, um, they're all treated sort of as individual images. And, and so you're not looking you know, for layering and you're not looking at relationships between certain things. And and so I've always been really puzzled and felt like, gosh, there could be so much more done with this. So this this leads me to, to probably the toughest question I'm going to ask you today. I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, <laughs> given that you've done your work with the pictographs, what do you think they tell us about the people that stayed in Empty Gulch and stayed there, used the caves, um, and how, you know, how do the pictographs enhance our sort of our understanding of what that place may have meant to them? You know, what are your thoughts on that, just given that you've spent time there, time with the material, and, and time with the pictographs? Well, I, you know, I don't go too far into the interpretation of, of pictographs. I, I leave that to some some of the other anthropologists that, you know, say, well, it's a bear, so it means this and it does that. I, I, I would prefer that um, the first peoples define some of that for themselves uh, if, if they have those answers either. Um, but I, I think that certainly that the, the pictographs and there were a couple of petroglyphs that were recorded there. Right. Um, right. There are not many, but there were a couple of carvings. Uh, pretty basic, pretty simple. Um, but I think they all represent the, the lives of the people that passed through there. And on a basic level, I think that they drew what was familiar to them. Um, you know, people with large shields with unique designs that were common in times before the horse and rifle arrived. You know, those shields were very distinctive. They were very personal. You know, studying historic inscriptions, I think you could say in some sense, that's them leaving their name. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they didn't use the alphabet and, and, and communicate the way that, that we do now. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I think that some of it is just a representation of, hey, I was here, uh, you know, with the same 
the same feelings that people have, uh, you know, today. You know, they drew what was what was familiar to them. Uh, you know, the, eventually the horse and the rifle arrived, and they drew them. Uh, you know, animals including bison, elk, deer, birds, turtles. You know, they all had meaning that was known to them. But uh, you know, I don't know how significant they were. I mean, uh, you know, was it before a hunt? Was it after a hunt? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the one, one of my favorites there uh, is probably figure 54, uh, which I mentioned earlier that has the, the elk with the three arrows pointed at it and right. three human figures right. nearby, right. regardless of how it was documented or, or how many components somebody might thought it be. I think that one probably tells a story about three guys that work together to get an elk. Right. Um, can't be sure of that, but hey, teamwork, you know, it, right. it, it shows that they're working together right. um, and they're doing something together. Um, we don't see a lot of family type rock art things. Um, you know, so I, I think that mm -hmm. one kind of stands out there. That, yeah, that. I, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, um, that's a, a beautiful one. There's a lot of beautiful ones. I love a lot of the shield ones. Um, one of the things I have to say, um, this is just to divert for a second, that I've, I chuckled at was in Oscar Lewis's notes. He drew some of these, and a couple of the things he drew were these oval shapes, like a double oval, and then there were some short spiky lines coming off them, and, and he would write, apparently this is about sex or something. And it was just so funny from a man who, as we know, had atrocious spelling and was very matter-of-fact to the point, to someone probably explaining to him this is a part of the female anatomy or something. And just it was just so funny to see it in his field notes and just wonder what was going through his head at the time. When he, <laughs> so there are some ab more abstract representations yeah, there too, you yeah. know, not all turtles and shields and horses and rifles. But female, right, right. females are represented in that way as well. And we see that throughout, <laughs> throughout uh, you know, rock, rock art. art. Yeah. 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 You, know, it, you know, people were, they were living there. They were living in the, in, in you know, spending time in the cave, they were camping out on the terraces, you know, it's, again, representative of their lives. Yeah, and I think life. across time shows quite right. a, a broad representation, representation of it. They were living and in some cases dying there. Yeah. And that really brings us, Tim, to this idea that we, this pictograph cave has this wide array of beautiful pictographs, but they also did archaeological excavations there. And and that's what Oscar Lewis was doing there starting in, in 1937. And, and Catherine McCann and all these people were actually excavating the floor of Pictograph Cave and Ghost Cave to find out more about the people who lived there through the artifacts that they left behind. And in this cave, there was remarkable preservation, as there is often in cave settings, um, because they are dry. And so there were so many examples of perishable materials that we usually don't find in archaeological sites that are actually represented at pictographs, like arrow shafts, leather, twining, all these things that often just decompose and are gone. And so it really gives us a window into all the activities, the different activities that were taking place at this place. So which of the many artifacts left behind do you really find the most intriguing? And what is your assessment of how the site was used during these different occupations? Well, <clears throat> the most intriguing artifacts, <clears throat> I, I, I think, are... Uh, there, there are multiple uh, direct examples in each group, but but one of them were the uh, the gaming pieces. Um, I'm I'm interested in those gaming pieces. I don't know if the tribes know what games were played with those or not. I, I haven't investigated it that closely, but but it's it's certainly believed that a lot of gaming pieces were there, and and the. Um, uh, the barbed caribou points yeah, um, are interesting. You've picked two of my uh, favorite artifact classes, too, from there that I find super intriguing. So what do you mean by barbed caribou points? Well, points were found that were, oh, I, I want to say they were six to eight inches long mm -hmm. and had multiple uh, barbs 
on them. So they were like and, notched, yeah. Like they almost looked yeah. like harpoon kind of things. Okay. And they were caribou yeah, bone? They, caribou bone? Yeah, yeah. And they, they, uh, they have photos of them in place. And then, of course, they were, they were documented after that. One of Oscar's speculations was that there were some buffalo that had been further up north and had been, uh, had been hunted and these points were put into the buffalo and that they then wandered down south from up in Canada into Montana and were killed here and they found them when they cleaned the animals. It's pretty speculative, but it's typical of Oscar's type of speculation. <laughs> That, that he would do and, and he them. would like yeah. tell anyone that idea oh that gosh. you would hear other people saying it and you're like yeah i uh, I, don't I don't know, know. that's <laughs> a big that's not an occam's yeah, razor kind I, of thing <laughs> but then trying to well, think of I, other ways that these these points got made and ended up there because they're not an artifact right tim that we typically find in that part no. of montana or really anywhere in montana I, mean, I think that over time we've learned just how extensive the trading yeah. networks were right? And, and however extensive we think they were, I bet they were much more extensive than that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we find, uh, you know, they find obsidian from the, the cliff in Yellowstone park in Ohio, you know, so yeah. it, it's not a great stretch to think that they were traded for. Yeah. You know, and some of these artifacts are located at the Museum of the Rockies, like I mentioned earlier. So we, we've been able to see some of them, and they are spectacular. And I think some of the, my favorite artifact is, or artifacts are the, and I don't know if I'm getting the terminology right, but the figurines yeah. with the faces. They're yeah. more just a face. <laughs> yeah. um, what is the right name for those? Tim, I mean, I, th I I don't know that there's anything yeah. better to say the way they were drawn and published in Malloy, but those are carved. One has a carved face. Carved. And then also, um, like you talked about the gaming pieces, those are carved and have um, sometimes abstract designs, but something look like the head of an animal on others. But there's a lot of representational ar artifacts, um, which, again, it just compared to so many places in Montana where you're mostly recovering bones and rock artifacts and points, it, it just feels like you get a much bigger window yeah. into what people's lives were like on a daily basis. And you're touching these things that, you know, they used in such different ways. And they Tools were in the tonal flutes. Yes. Oh, tonal yeah. flutes. Yeah. 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 You know, empty gulch is very acoustic, very acoustic. Wow. Yeah. And, and it would have been, it would have been great to have heard those played there. I always wonder if that's part of the reason there were so many more pictographs in that cave rather than Ghost Cave. And the other is that maybe the acoustics were just exceptionally amazing and it it drew people in to, to mark, you know, maybe ceremonies were more likely to happen there. But I also worry that, like, you know, I mean, there's bodies that have come out of Pictograph Cave, but, you know, we know sandstone spalls off the the back wall and the the roof, and I I just wonder if we have multiple occupations that are separated by long stretches of time there, and you know you just wonder if if anyone was ever there when these spalls came off and what that might have been like. You know I don't know. It's just I feel like I have a lot of questions. I feel like there's so much about the people that made all that art and left all those artifacts there that we just still don't know, you know? I, we, we, we don't know more than we know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll take that. Okay. But yeah, so I want to, um, I want to ask you a little bit more about Oscar Lewis, who you talked about earlier and um, you know, you, you waded through his handwritten journals, as we said before. And um, there have been times where, where I've encountered archaeologists who've spoken kind of disparagingly about Oscar Lewis when they were talking about Pictograph Cave. And, um, you know, because some of the artifacts from the caves ended up in his possession and then went to Joseph Kramer and then were donated to Museum of the Rockies, um, there's always been a bit of wonder and speculation. Of course, this was a different time, 1936, 1937, and he certainly visited the caves 
before the excavation started. And, and probably like he had at other places, he probably dug and collected and perhaps with permission of the landowner. You know, those are things we will probably never know. Um, but you state in Chapter 8 on page 140, um, you have a nice quote. You say that although Oscar Lewis never had any formal training, by that last year of the WPA project, when, when Malloy, who had some archaeological training, had taken over um, the project, that Oscar had become, quote, fully functioning as a professional archaeological field superintendent who by then was as capable and experienced as any other that would be functioning in the West during that period. Um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about how maybe your perspective on Oscar Lewis um, has grown or changed by doing all this research. Well, it, it you know, it, it wasn't just Oscar's notes that, that, that told me that. You know, there are photos and external information as well that, that verifies that, that Oscar was very proud of what he did there. And you can you can see even in his notes that his spelling eventually improves. Oh, goodness gracious. I don't I don't um, know if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, his 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 locations became cleaner, mm, you know, mm -hmm. he. I think there came a point in the excavation once uh, uh, once the, the first uh, archaeologist that wasn't an archaeologist left. Um, I think he realized that that uh, you know this is up to me. Mm. This is up to me to finish. And we also have to realize that that uh, uh, you know he had to keep timesheets, manage workers, organize supplies. He served as a liaison between the project, the community, and the academic institutions that were involved. Um, I mean, I mean, he, you look at the photos, he, yeah, during, toward the end of the project, he's a sharp dressed fella. Yeah. You know, shoot, he, he wore a tie to the field. I know. Yeah. But he I had to do so lecture, oh, let alone the field. <laughs> he had to do so much work though and interact with all these visiting professionals. I mean, Nels Nelson came out from um the American Museum of Natural History and and notes in his own notes that Oscar Lewis was the most interesting local to talk to and knowledgeable about the the area. And um I know I agree with you, he had to balance so, so much beyond, but it does seem like even in his 50s, he was still able to learn new stuff about methods, you know, um, mm -hmm. through that, that those couple of years, you know, from 37 yeah. to 41. I, I, I think it was almost inevitable that he grew as a professional, you know, he spent so much time in it. Uh, you know, he was never thrown from the project. He was the only one retained for the whole time. Right. And uh, I think it's an interesting footnote that afterward, after he had spent a little time over at Hart Mountain um, as, as a carpenter, and he went to Alaska to work on, on the highway up there, that he would find time in Alaska to go out and look for artifacts. Yeah, I think he was kind of obsessed. I mean, he definitely was fascinated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he always wanted to know more. They all yeah. describe him as having tireless energy, though, too. I mean, it's fascinating to hear other people's descriptions of him as having such sharp eyes still at his age and so much energy that, you know, it, it was nice that um, those recordings that Stu Connor made of Walter Vanneman that you were, were able to share with me to hear someone else talk about him who was there on site with him, you know, get, definitely gave a different perspective even than his notes and, and other information about him. Mm. Yeah, that's, it's so interesting to learn more about him. And, and you know, the, the collection that is at the Museum of the Rockies, um, and, and Nancy, you've worked with this collection extensively and this journal that he kept it's just really a thing of beauty too I mean I, I think that we should maybe you could just talk a little bit about that Nancy because I think it's so important well it's just wonderful it's all been kept together um, and that Joseph Kramer kind of as a labor of love who who moved briefly to live in the Billings area got to know Oscar Lewis right away who befriended him and 
Joseph Kramer became super obsessed with learning about archaeology, and he did go on to become the largest funder of Paleo-Indian research before he died. So Joseph Kramer financially was, well, he was an oil and gas man, but he had such a fondness for Oscar Lewis that he promised Oscar Lewis he would organize his collection and then and then donate it somewhere respectable. And he made good on that promise. And boy, that was painstaking, all the work that he put into that, all the photographs and documentation, handwritten. So yeah. it is it is amazing through both those two men that we have that record. So it's Kramer that kind of put all that. Of all Oscar of, Lewis's yeah, together. together. And that's kept, right. his, kept Lewis's field journals together and yeah. used them to inform a lot of what is is in that collection. So, right. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. that's amazing. So finally, Tim, we really always like to bring our topic into the present and talk about its relevancy today. And so, Pictograph Cave and the analysis of those materials recovered from the archaeological excavations there were all done before NAGPRA, and NAGPRA is the acronym acronym for the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act and other laws that really required the involvement of tribes and descendant communities. So can you tell us a little bit about how Pictograph Cave State Park, as it's known now, um, really worked to change this and involve the tribes um, in the care of the artifacts and really the interpretation of the site? Okay. Well, you know, uh, like, like the artifacts, you know, material was spread far and wide about the project um, and remained that way for quite some time. Um, a, a bit over a decade ago, the University of Montana Anthropology Department finally approached the task of organizing what could be found of the artifacts and, and the documentation, including human remains uh, that were there. And so uh, through the Curation Center, um, working with uh, state parks, and, and I know that tribes were involved. I was not directly involved in that. Um, but the human remains were identified and quietly repatriated within the park. Um, and I do know that tribal representatives were present for that. And so um, there has been a great review of the material done uh, and, and appropriate action taken. Um, it, it quite probably there is more material out there somewhere in a museum, somewhere in an archive, somewhere. But but uh, you know we we have lots of unlabeled things around the country, um, so it's not impossible that something you know a bone or two could appear somewhere else. But uh, again, this this effort was made that all of the material that um, is here would be reviewed and was repatriated to the park. That's great. I know. That is good to know. Mm-hmm. And and so some of the collection is at um, is up in Missoula at the University of Montana in their create their curation facility. And then the other section I think is still at Museum of the Rockies. As far as we know, that's where um, most I believe of the Museum at the Material of the Rockies would have come through Oscar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and his association with uh, the gentleman you you, you just mentioned uh, whose name is escaping Joseph me right Kramer. now. Joseph Kramer, yep. Yeah. Yep. Kramer, yes, yes. Um, yeah, at the conclusion of the project, U of M was the academic institution in charge. And so when things were done and stuff was closed up, everything went there. Right. right. And then it remained there in storage for quite some time. Mm. But, uh, yeah. Um, well, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to dis- discuss all this background with us and everything that's gone in into this amazing book, which is really a huge compilation of, of a major archive that both um, Stu and you have put together. Um, so we've run out of time, and we want to just ask, P- ask you before we go, where can people find the book, Men of the Cave, if they would like to get a copy? Well... I'm, I'm still learning about self-publishing and book distribution and things of that type. Uh, but at this time, the books are available at the Pictograph Cave State Park Visitor Center. Um, they're also available at the Yellowstone County Museum, which is up uh, by the airport in Billings. Um, or you could email me at turbaniac at bresnan.net. 
That's T-U-R-B-A-N-I-A-K at B-R-E-S-N-A-N dot net. And I can get one headed your way. Awesome. Uh, I got my signed copy. I did too. I I got mine as well. So yeah, it's a really great book, Tim. Congratulations Congratulations. on publishing it and pulling it all together. And it, it is just a wealth of information. So really enjoyed our conversation today, Tim. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. And we hope to see you in a, in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks, a few weeks at the Montana Archaeological Society meetings. Yep, a couple of weeks. Couple it's of always weeks. great to visit with you guys. And thank you for all the great preservation work that you do. Fantastic. So thank you, Tim, and thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt dirt on the the past. Past. And thank you again to the Museum of the Rockies for sponsoring this episode. And a big thank you to our editors, Drake Pinnell and Sierra Thomas. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music and to Steve Durbin at KGBM and John Chadwell for help getting the podcast out in the world. Mm-hmm.